Well, hey everyone, great to be with you today. Let's begin with a question. How many of you will travel away from home for more than 24 hours this summer? I know, I know, I can't actually see your hand. But the truth is, I don't have to see you to know that most of you raised your hand or could have. The experts tell us that 85% of adults will hit the road in one way or another this summer. That's about 219 million Americans, up a couple of percentage points from last year. 43 million of them will be driving, so it will literally be a road trip. Now, if you happen to be part of the 15% not getting away this summer, chances are you'll at least be doing some day tripping to the beach or the lake or grandma's house, maybe just taking walks around the neighborhood or some nearby conservation land. The point is, one way or another, just about every one of us will be hitting the road this summer in one way or another. And the good news is that traveling, moving from one place to another, it's one of the best things you can do for yourself. Doctors and psychologists tell us that travel, getting away from home, relieves stress, enhances creativity, boosts happiness, and lowers the risk of depression. Something as simple as a change of scenery, a break from the normal routine, can help you feel and function better. Uh, a simple walk around the block pumps oxygen to your brain, opens new neural pathways, and increases your brain capacity. Now, it makes sense even, even if you're not a neuroscientist. Every time you see or hear or taste or feel something new, your brain has to process that stimuli, has to receive it, evaluate it, integrate it into what you already know, and then file it away for future reference. All of that causes your brain to grow. And have you ever noticed how much easier it is to read or get work done on an airplane? It turns out there is something about the altitude and the air pressure in the cabin that actually enhances brain function. But if you ask me, it's not just the air pressure. It's, it's the fact that you're moving, traveling from one place to another, suspended between two points and out of your normal environment that opens your mind to fresh insights and ideas. And if you're on JetBlue, the Duncans doesn't hurt either. I do some of my best work on airplanes. But, but here's the best part about all of this. Road trips, travel, movement, aren't just good for your body and mind and spirit. They're good for your soul. They can strengthen your faith, enrich your relationship with God, lead to decisions and discoveries you might never have made had you stayed home or stayed put. Now, if you're part of Kids Week on any of our campuses this summer, you already know this. The Kids Week theme is ready, set, move. Our kids have been learning that we weren't made to stand still. We were made to move, to follow Jesus here, there, and everywhere. Well, this summer, we're exploring non-traditional ways of caring for your soul. As valuable as spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible study and fasting and journaling can be for your spiritual health and vitality, it turns out that other things are good for your soul too. Things that feel less like disciplines 
and more like delights. Last week, John helped us understand that ice cream is good for your soul. Not just ice cream, of course, but, but any of the good gifts and pleasurable experiences that God has given us to enjoy in relationship with him. We've had kids and grandkids with us the past couple of weeks. And between Bedford Farms and the teepee at Camp of the Woods, I've eaten a lot of ice cream the past couple of weeks, which must make me something of a spiritual giant. (laughs) Two weeks ago, Tim gave us permission to sleep in or take a rest because it turns out that naps are good for your soul. I was glad to hear that too because I'm a pretty good power napper. Five-minute snooze in the middle of the afternoon, and I'm a new man. I'm so good at it, I've been known to take naps in the middle of a meeting. (laughs) I'm not making that up. Just ask the staff. Three weeks ago, we introduced the series with Jesus' invitation to come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Borrowing a phrase from Eugene Peterson, we describe things like rest and fun and laughter as unforced rhythms of grace. Things we don't have to do or make ourselves do, but things we enjoy doing that actually contribute to our spiritual growth. And for many of us, The rhythm of our year allows us to lean into these things in the summertime, which is good for our souls. So today, we're going to explore how and why travel, movement of any kind, can be good for our souls. Uh, Let's begin about thinking about the many important things that happen in Scripture when people are on the road or on the move. The story of God's people actually begins with a road trip. As God says to Abraham and Sarah, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. So Abraham went, traveling from Ur to Canaan, and the redemptive purposes of God were set in motion. His grandson Jacob spent much of his life on the road, and at one point lay down to sleep in the middle of nowhere, only to have a stairway open to heaven in a dream. When he woke up, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Jacob met the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, literally on the road. In his later years, Jacob and his descendants traveled to Egypt to escape a famine. Hundreds of years later, they left Egypt and spent a generation encountering God again and again on a 40-year journey to the promised land. As it turned out, staying put wasn't very good for their souls. After just a few generations in that land, idolatry and rivalry had ruined their relationships with God and with each other. It took a 900-mile forced march to Babylon and 70 years in a foreign land to wake them up to the goodness of God and inspire them to make the journey back to their land and their God. 400 years later, John the baptizer appears in the wilderness, preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Mark tells us the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. 
They had to leave their homes and neighborhoods and venture out to the hills to encounter God. When the Messiah appears, he's actually born on the road, spends his toddlerhood in a foreign land before traveling back to Nazareth. As a 30-something-year-old, he leaves home for good, spends the next three years on the road. Now, we'll come back to Jesus in a minute, but this simple map gives you a general sense of of Jesus' travels, north, south, east, west, all over the land of Israel. The Apostle Paul meets Jesus literally on the road to Damascus and goes on to make at least three missionary journeys by foot, ship, and donkey all over the empire. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, which we just finished studying, was received and written while John was where? Away from home, in exile, on the island of Patmos. So this simple survey of Scripture reveals that God does some of his best work on the road. Now, why is that? What is it about travel and movement that opens us up to spiritual discovery and growth? Well, in part, it's it's the way God has wired our minds and bodies to work, as we spoke about earlier. Any doctor will tell you that the best thing you can do for your physical and mental health at any age is exercise. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when we're moving, when we're at our sharpest mentally, physically, and emotionally, we're most likely to be attentive and receptive to the presence and work of God in our lives. <laughs> in the same way that the taste of ice cream helps us be present and in the moment, as John explained last week, the sights and sounds of travel demand our attention. They pique our curiosity. They give the spirit a chance to speak into that moment. And the uncertainty of travel, not knowing what's around the next bend, the challenges we encounter, what's waiting for us when we arrive, all these things prompt us to rely on the Lord for guidance and provision, to lean on Him in ways we might not have to in our more familiar environments. I'm sure our middle and high schoolers are experiencing this as as they travel on their cross-cultural learning experiences this summer traveling to Boston and Philadelphia, hanging out in neighborhoods unlike the ones they're used to, facing challenges they may not face in their everyday lives at home. We're praying and believing that they will have fresh encounters with God on these journeys. So with all this in mind, and to help us make the most of our travel this summer, Let's catch up with Jesus and his disciples at a meaningful moment in their journey. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, as many of us know, this is going to be a very important conversation. Jesus is about to ask the disciples the most important question they have ever been asked. The most important question any of us will ever be asked. And knowing that, notice how intentionally Jesus sets it up. 
when, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. It seems as though Jesus arranged for this conversation to take place at a particular time, in a particular place, on a particular journey. If we back up a couple of chapters, it looks as though this journey began back in chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus intentionally leaves the shore of Galilee, where he spent most of his early ministry, and travels northwest to the coastal towns of Tyre and Sidon. In verse 29, we read that Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. So he's on the road again, back to Galilee. Verse 39, we're told that after Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan, which is another town also on the shores of Galilee. But they don't stay there long either. Verse 16, when they went across the lake, chapter 16, verse 5, when they went across the lake, Jesus is on the move again, this time in a boat crossing over to the western shore of Galilee. And then finally, we get to our text in 16, chapter 16, verse 1, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which you can see to the northwest there on the map. So they've covered a lot of miles in preparation for this conversation. They've seen a lot in those travels. They've seen Jesus heal a Canaanite woman's daughter in Tyre and Sidon. They've seen him feed thousands of people on the shores of Galilee, argue with the Pharisees in Magadan, and then they've listened to him teach as they crossed the Sea of Galilee. So think about all they've seen and heard on this journey. We talked earlier about how the sights and sounds of travel stimulate our brains and stir our spirits. So all of this travel helps to set them up for this important conversation. But it wasn't just the journey that was intentional on Jesus' part. It was the destination, Caesarea Philippi. All kinds of interesting things are going on here. Uh, For one thing, the springs in Caesarea Philippi flowed into the Jordan River, which, which figured so significantly in Israel's history. Secondly, it was a politically important city. Herod the Great had built a Roman temple there, and his son Philip had renamed the region after himself. Thirdly, it was a spiritually significant location. For centuries, it had been a place of pagan worship, first to the god Baal of Old Testament times, and in Jesus' time, it was a shrine to Pan, the pagan god of nature. And fourthly, it was a beautiful place where cool water flowed freely from a great rock formation, creating a literal oasis in the wilderness. We actually got to visit this area on our trip to Israel last spring. And as you can tell from the smiling tourist, it's a beautiful spot. And experiencing this place gave me a new appreciation for why Jesus brought his disciples here. He was about to ask them the most important question he had ever asked them. And he chose to ask them that question in a beautiful place, a spiritually vibrant place, after spending weeks on the road with him, engaged in the work of ministry. 
In other words, it was what we would call a retreat. Getting away to a beautiful, restful, spiritually rich place for a fresh encounter with God. Think Camp Berea or or Pilgrim Pines or Rolling Ridge or Camp of the Woods. And with all this beauty and history and politics and spirituality as a backdrop, he asks them this loaded question. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And for the first and maybe the only time in the Gospels, Peter says exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was a holy moment. Peter not only identifies Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, he also describes him as the Son of the living God. Now, he certainly couldn't have fully understood what he was saying, but but he had come to believe that Jesus was in a unique relationship with the Father, that there was no human category that could contain him. Now, we said earlier that this was the most important question any human being could ever be asked. And look how personal it is. Jesus wasn't really interested in what other people had to say about him. That was just the warm-up question. The real question was, after all that you've seen and heard, in light of all that's happening in the world around us, who do you say that I am? Now, how would you answer that question? According to some recent surveys, the vast majority of Americans in the 90% range believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who actually lived. Slightly more than half, about 52%, believe that Jesus was a great teacher and nothing more. Okay, that's all very interesting. But the critical question is, who do you believe Jesus was and is? That's not really the subject of this message, but if you're not sure, any one of us would love to have that conversation with you. Because many of us have discovered Jesus to be the savior of our souls and the best friend a person could ever have. Well, when Peter made that discovery, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. A couple of interesting things to point out here. First, it's clear from Jesus' words that God has been at work in Simon Peter's heart for a while now. He didn't come up with his idea on the spur of the moment out of nowhere. He got there over time in response to all that he's seen and heard in his travels with Jesus. It was on the road, on the way, that Peter's eyes and ears and mind and heart were open to the possibility that Jesus was greater than any rabbi or prophet or healer he had ever met. There's something else really interesting going on here. Take a closer look at this oasis in Caesarea Philippi. 
where this conversation most likely took place. What do you see there? An enormous rock outcropping, right? And in the shadow of that massive rock wall, Jesus chooses to say, you are Petrus, and on this Petra, on this rock, I will build my church. What a powerful, memorable impression that would have made on Peter and the other disciples. The point I'm trying to make is that Peter's physical journey to this time and place was essential to his spiritual journey and his declaration of faith. I'll say that again. Peter's physical journey was essential to his spiritual journey. And when I stood in in that very spot a couple of months ago and felt the beauty and the gravitas of that location, I suddenly understood why Jesus brought them there. This holy moment wasn't accidental. I believe Jesus intentionally took his disciples on this road trip and brought them to this physical location in order to pose this particular question and facilitate a memorable and transformative moment for Peter and the Twelve. To put it another way, this wasn't just a road trip. It was a pilgrimage. Now, now pilgrimage is a a word we don't often use in the Protestant tradition. Uh, When we hear the word pilgrimage, we we likely think of, of Muslims making their way to Mecca, or Hindus traveling to bathe in the River Ganges, or or Roman Catholics visiting the Vatican or some other holy site. I I happen to know two people from Grace who recently took the Camino Walk hundreds of miles across Spain to the Cathedral de Santiago de Compostela. Both of them found it to be a very meaningful experience. But a pilgrimage can be as simple as any journey taken for spiritual purposes. It doesn't have to be to fulfill a religious requirement or visit some spot that's been designated sacred for some reason. This this roundabout journey to Caesarea Philippi and all the other traveling we find in the Scripture suggests that any trip we take, any journey from one place to another, can actually become a pilgrimage if we open our eyes and ears and minds and hearts to the presence and activity of God around us. Earlier in the series, I I told the story of our annual overnight drives to Grandma's house in Illinois and how I sensed the Lord's pleasure and presence as as I drove into the night, listening to music, reflecting on the past year, enjoying the sights and sounds and feel of the road. Anytime we hit the road and invite Jesus along for the ride, it becomes a pilgrimage, an opportunity for fresh encounters with the Lord, for discovery and decision-making and even discipleship. And that's good news for many of us as we hit the road or hop on an airplane or walk around the block this summer. On the first night of our trip to Israel, back in the spring, we gathered our group of 50 Grace Chapel friends on on a rooftop terrace of our hotel in Tel Aviv. 
And I shared with them some of the thoughts I've shared with you today about the way travel can open our minds and hearts to the presence of God, uh, the importance of intentionality and attentiveness as we journey along. <laughs> and that trip turned out to be very good for our souls. And by the way, we do hope to take more Grace Chapel trips in the years to come. So if you'd be interested in one of those, uh, reach out to Pastor Kurt Drescher and let him know of your interest. But the good news is that you don't have to travel to the Holy Land to be surprised by fresh encounters with God. All you have to do is set your heart on pilgrimage every time you hit the road, whether it's for a cross-country trip or a walk around the block. So to make all this practical, let me offer you five simple strategies for turning everyday travel into a pilgrimage. First, look for holy ground. Look for holy ground. Now, that doesn't mean your trip has to be to a church or a Christian camp or a retreat center. Caesarea Philippi was actually a pagan site when Jesus and the Twelve first showed up there. But it was a beautiful place, rich with historical and political and, and spiritual significance. And it became holy ground when they encountered Christ there in a way they never had before. So holy ground could be a scenic overlook or a historical site or a museum or your childhood home or your alma mater. Any place that prompts you to slow down, to observe, to ponder, can open your mind and heart to the presence of God. It could be a vacation home or a spot on the beach or in the woods where God has met you before. I encourage you to return to those kinds of places with a sense of expectancy and readiness to hear from God. <laughs> but the holy ground could be a church or a camp or a retreat center. I've gone back to visit almost every church I've ever been part of in the course of my life. I've walked the halls, I've sat in the sanctuary, and, and I've remembered meaningful moments and decisions in all of those places. Camp of the Woods has become holy ground for many of us, a place where our bodies, minds, and souls are renewed. So when you plan a trip, when you're on a trip, keep your eyes open for holy ground. Secondly, listen for God's voice. Open your ears to the possibility that God might want to speak to you as you fly or drive or ride or walk. Sometimes that'll mean turning off the music and just enjoying the scenery. You don't have to fill every moment with sound. In the silence, you might just hear the whisper of God. Other times, you might want to turn on the music let, let, let the tune and lyrics refresh and inspire you, whether they're Christian or not. Listen to a podcast. Catch up on a sermon you missed. Tune into some other preachers you don't normally get to hear. Third, taste the local flavor. And by that I mean enter into the experience. Be present to the people and places around you. If you're traveling in another part of the world, don't eat at McDonald's. If you're in a historic place, 
Read the plaques, take the tour. If you're in a national park, take a hike. If you're visiting family or friends, invest in those relationships, ask questions, play with the kids or the grandkids. Wherever your travels take you, be all in. Revel in the beauty of the world God has made and in the diversity of people and cultures that reflect his image. Fourth, bring someone along or not. I'm not sure those options need a whole lot of commentary. Traveling with someone can deepen your relationship and and make the trip more interesting. Traveling alone can give you time and space you need to be renewed. The point is, be intentional about it. Last but not least, invite God along for the ride. Now, I don't mean that as flippantly as it sounds, but I don't want it to sound super spiritual either. I'm simply reminding us that the Holy Spirit rarely pushes into our experience. The Spirit waits to be invited, to be sought after, to be attended to. So invite the Lord into the planning of your trip. Where should I go, Lord? And when? And with whom? And by what means or route shall I travel? And once you're on the road, talk to God along the way, in the morning, in the evening, as you make your way around the world. Bring your Bible and a journal, maybe a spiritual classic you've been wanting to read. Check out our discipleship resources at grace.org slash the journey. It's got books and podcasts for the road. Visit a church when you travel. (laughs) There's something very freeing about worshiping in a church where you don't know anybody and you aren't responsible for anything. Or skip church and worship as a family or have a private time with God. Wherever you go and whenever you go, invite God along for the ride. Occasionally, he'll make himself known in fresh or dramatic ways. Most of the time, you'll simply sense his quiet and steady presence. Either way, the Lord is a wonderful traveling companion. Now, I could stop here, and maybe you wish I would, but I realize that for some, this has perhaps been a hard message to hear. Some of you won't be traveling anywhere this summer. Maybe you don't have the funds or the freedom to hit the road right now. Maybe you're battling an illness or caring for someone who needs you around, dealing with some family or personal issues that that just aren't conducive to vacations. Let me offer you some words of hope and promise as we finish up today. Psalm 84 has often been called the Pilgrim Psalm, and it begins like this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. The writer appears to be on the road. He's missing home, especially the house of worship, where he has so often sensed the Lord's presence. He wishes he could be there, but he's far from home and uncertain as to when and even if he'll ever make it back there again. But he continues in verse 3. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, 
whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn's rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. He's reminding himself that no matter where he is or what his circumstances are, he's on a journey, a journey toward God. Everyday life, with all of its surprises and challenges, its delights and its difficulties, all of it can be a pilgrimage if he opens his eyes and his ears to God. The interesting thing about this Valley of Baca is that you can't find it on a map. It isn't a physical place. It's a spiritual and emotional place. The, the word Baca describes a kind of desert shrub that grows in barren, arid lands. Remember the oasis in Caesarea Philippi with the lush foliage and the cool flowing water? Well, the Valley of Baca is the opposite of that. It's a lonely place, a dry place. And yet even there, in that thirsty valley, the pilgrim finds refreshment. Notice the intentionality. He doesn't find a spring. He makes it a place of springs. By his or her attentiveness to God, by looking and listening and leaning into the experience, their soul finds rest and renewal. She finds strength to keep going one foot in front of the other until she reaches her destination, Zion, the presence of God. So it turns out that travel really is good for your soul. Even if the only journey you're making is from the beginning of the week to the end of the week. Because you can still look for holy ground. You can still listen for God's voice. You can taste the local flavor. You can bring someone along with you or not. And most importantly, you can invite God along for the ride. And when we travel like that, when we open our minds and hearts and souls to fresh encounters with Christ, the Son of the living God, He meets us in ways we might never have expected. So as, as we... As we bow our heads and hearts to pray here, let me give you a moment to bring your travel plans before the Lord or your plans to stay home. And just invite him into the experience. Let's pray for a minute. Help us, Lord, to set our hearts on pilgrimage this summer, whether we're hitting the road or staying home. And meet us on the way, Lord, opening our minds and hearts to fresh encounters with you. In Jesus' name, amen.